Hey lady, it's Dr. Dom here. If you like this show and you want to make your own, let me tell you about the free platform Anchor. It's a creation tool that allows you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. You can add songs from Spotify and create any type of content that you are looking for. Anchor will distribute it all for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hey, lady, if you're looking for that extra dose of behind-the-scenes content that Terry and I put out after every episode, go to herspacepodcast.com, click Patreon, Wisdom Wednesdays with Terry, and you will be taken to our Patreon page where for the entire month of September, you will have free access to our after shows. Check it out. And we hope that you become a subscriber. Black people were needed to build the things they built in this country, right? The railroads, the White House, all that stuff, right? They were a commodity. We were a commodity. And now that we're in a place where we survived past the point where they, I guess, thought we were going to survive, they don't need us anymore. So now it's like, okay, we got to figure out how to get rid of these Black people. And that's what it seems like it's happening when you think about just the violence the lack of resources in our communities. And so there's a lot going on. But again, I'm really hopeful. And it's so beautiful to see us still out here doing our thing, still flourishing, still thriving. That's what's inspiring to me. And just hearing this conversation, like us having this amazing conversation tonight, it really gave me a lot of energy and joy. So ah, it makes me happy to do the work that we do. Welcome to Her Space, a podcast dedicated to uplifting women like you. We're your hosts, Dr. Dominique Broussard, a college professor and psychologist, and Terry Lomax, a techie and motivational speaker. In a world where Black women are often misrepresented and misunderstood, please join us as we initiate authentic conversations on everything from fibroids to fake friends and create a safe space where Black women can just be. Hey lady, it's Terry here from the Herspace podcast, and I have a question for you. Do you want to start your own podcast? Have you been thinking to yourself, you know what? I want to start a podcast, but you just haven't taken the leap. If that's you, I got you. I'm hosting a free podcasting masterclass where I'm going to teach you how to create your own podcast from start to finish. So visit terrylomax.com and click on the pink link in the middle of your screen and register for my free podcasting masterclass. All right, ladies, today we have a very special guest in her space, okay? So get yourself ready for this. Dr. Candace Nicole Hargons is an award-winning assistant professor of counseling psychology at the University of Kentucky, where she studies sex, social justice, and leadership, all with a love ethic. She is also a licensed psychologist and founding director of the Center for Healing Racial Trauma. She has been featured in Good Housekeeping, Women's Health, Alavity, The Huffington Post, and The New York Times. Dr. Candace Nicole, welcome to Her Space. Hey, y'all. Thank you for having me. Oh, you are so welcome. We are so excited to have you here today. And so we are going to jump right in. And our quote of the day may sound really familiar to you. Black people 
don't need video evidence to know. And that quote comes to us from Dr. Candace Nicole. (laughs) 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 So, Dr. Candace Nicole, when you wrote that quote, I have a sense of what it means for me, but since you wrote it, I'm curious about what was coming up for you that led to you writing that quote? We were right in the middle of the George Floyd case. And we were having some discussion amongst my friends and colleagues about whether people had seen the video and what the importance of bearing witness to that was. And this is a multiracial group of colleagues. And I was like, no, black people don't need that type of evidence. We don't need to bear witness to that to know. Someone could tell me and I would believe it. And so I'm not going to subject myself to vicarious trauma just so that I can have further confirmation of something that I already believe, trust, know at a bone level. That is so deep and so powerful and also sad at the same time. I feel like. Right. I know when I saw that quote on your Instagram, I literally got goosebumps. Like I chills ran down my spine. It made me think about how a lot of our contemporaries and colleagues, they've needed to see video. They've always, you know, asked questions. They're like, oh, well, maybe this happened. And now even when they have evidence, there's always, well, what about what about this? And we we didn't need it because we knew. Right. That is just so powerful because it's not a philosophical conversation. Right. Like this isn't something you could just theorize about. It's everyday life fears and worries that we're walking in the world holding. So, no, I don't need to see a video. I, I will not watch another video if I can at all prevent it. Yeah. You know, I feel the same way. It's mm-hmm. I try my hardest not to watch any videos. Yes. Just like you said, to prevent that vicarious trauma. Mm-hmm. And I know for sure that the trauma is real because my research is related to listening. Just listening to an audio raises your heart rate. So if the audio of something racially harassing raises your heart rate, the video is certainly going to do more to your body. And just who needs that? Wow. So, okay. I have a question about the research. So (laughs) talk to us a little bit about what your research has shown, because we know anecdotally that from us having conversations with one another, Mm -hmm. that vicarious trauma is a real thing. But your research is showing that there is physiological changes in the Mm -hmm. body. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. So it's the healing racial trauma study in my my research team at University of Kentucky, the Rye Square research team. We did the study about a year and a half, two years ago now. And we basically had consenting black college students listen to a five minute audio clip of a self-identified white woman using racially harassing, negative, stereotypical language about black people while we connected them to a biometric monitor that measured their heart rate. And our research showed overwhelmingly that most people had a spike in their heart rate when they heard the audio. So we showed it physiologically, but then we interviewed them and asked them about their experience of it. And all of them confirmed that, yes, 
that is a racist stimulus. That is racial harassment. And they talked about their different ways of experiencing that and reacting to it. Some people cried. Some people's bodies were literally shaking, like all kinds of somatic symptoms. Some people expressed a range of emotions. And some people even had these cognitive strategies they were using to try to understand it or distance themselves from the pain they felt related to it. So we know psychologically and physiologically that this stuff affects us just in audio. We absolutely know a video will do more. That is heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, for me personally, I think that the term racial trauma is new. However, the feelings and the things behind it are not, right? And so Dr. Candice Nicole, can we just dive into like, what is racial trauma? And the second part of that question we got to put in there is how does it specifically impact Black women? Do you want the researchy definition or do you want the community definition? Shoot, give us both Both, of them. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the community definition is racial trauma is when the effects, the negative effects of racism stick with you for a long time, affecting how you think, how you feel emotionally and physically if you ignore it. So it causes you to suffer. And this can be based on whether the racist experience was one severe experience, like a police encounter, or regular repetitive experiences like microaggressions. So not every racist thing will lead to racial trauma, but how you experience it, how you appraise it, and how you deal with it as an individual can help you heal. Because everybody doesn't heal the same way. It doesn't affect everyone the same way. So that's the community definition of racial trauma. And then I have to pull up (laughs) the researchy definition of racial trauma. We just submitted a paper on this. So I was like, well, let's, let's go for it then. Yes. Let's, let's Mm -hmm. have it out there in the research. Like let it be clear, let it be readily accessible to academics, to other researchers and scientists so that they know that this is real so Mm -hmm. that they start taking us seriously. When when our community members come in and they're sitting in the therapist's office and they are speaking about these things, Mm. we know that a lot of therapists, particularly white Western trained therapists, will go by evidence based practice. Yes. And if racial trauma is not a term that's in the research, then a lot of them are not going to take it seriously. Come on. And let me be clear, racial trauma has been a term in the research since 2005. I mean, if they were looking for it, they could have found it. But the reason why we decided to do our study in the way we did is because mostly psychologists and theorists have defined racial trauma, but we wanted to have a grounded definition of racial trauma based on Black people explaining what it was to them. And so the academic definition is racial trauma is the experience of enduring cognitive, affective, and or somatic responses to racism, including race-based stress reactions, like the immediate reaction that you get when you hear or experience something racist, and subsequent race-based stress symptoms. And they manifest based on the intensity or frequency of racist stressors. So not every stressor leads to racial trauma, but those that are especially intense or frequent are more likely to elicit racial trauma. And it's the absence of a repertoire of coping or healing strategies that increases the likelihood that you'll experience racial trauma. So for some of us, we over rely on a single coping strategy, even if it's adaptive, 
it's not going to be sufficient to protect against the accumulation of race-based stress because it's racism is all around us. And we also want to note that, you know, it's not the responsibility of people who have been injured by racism to heal themselves because health resources are not equitably distributed. But when you do move forward into healing collectively and as an individual, it will facilitate symptom reduction and promote racial healing. Ooh, yes. Thank you for <laughs> the work that you are doing. Because, my God, the mm-hmm. amount of stress and trauma mm-hmm. that we experience. That people take for granted. Yes. Some of us have even become numb to it, frankly, out of survival. Ooh, that part. Out of survival. That's a good point. And that was so powerful, all that you just shared. And when we think about the way it shows up for or in Black women, what are some of those, I guess, symptoms, if we had to call them? Yeah. So it can show up in superwoman schema and overwork. It's me. I'm speaking to myself right now. It can me too. Show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> me too. It's calling all of us out, yes. okay? Listen. Loud, loud. <laughs> it can show up as fatigue, deep, deep fatigue, lack of motivation, Difficulty concentrating, hypervigilance, so always looking out for something, feeling constantly tense, headaches, stomach aches, shoulder, jaw, neck tense. It can look like irritability, whereas a lot of people are like, why, why do black women have attitudes? But like, that's not it. Some of us are experiencing depressive symptoms related to racial trauma. Some of us are experiencing anxiety symptoms. And some of us are experiencing PTSD, but it can also look like fibroids. It can also look like high blood pressure. It can also look like cardiovascular disease and diabetes. People in the research have already begun to connect these to racial trauma. And so noticing those pieces that are disproportionately affecting our community is important because people think it's just our personal behaviors and it's not. When you control for all of that, you still see how racism has shifted the or increased the amount of health burden we have. Wow. I'm probably going to say wow, like a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. My mind is blown. I'm just like mind blown emoji. Like, whoa. Because it's things that I knew. Mm-hmm. But. Because you know it on a gut level, right? You yes. know. Yes. Like I think about like my own personal experience with fibroids. Mm. I think about so many other black women that I know who have fibroids, who have anxiety, who have depression, who have high blood pressure, all of these things. Yes. And I think there's some level of validation in hearing that it's not us, that Mm. it's the environment around us that has created this. And can we talk about, Dr. Candace Nicole, can we talk about why it appears to be so challenging for certain groups to acknowledge and understand racial trauma when it comes to Black people? I feel like for other races, it's understandable, right? You're like, oh, okay, I can understand why this community might feel this way or why they may talk about their history and the things that have happened to them. But I feel like Whenever it comes to Black people, it's like this, oh, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. And it's like, well, the whole system is made to weaken us in our community. How the hell are we supposed to do that? Right. right. So why do we put 
so hard for people to just get it when it comes to black people. Like there's a war against blackness. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like this is real. I don't think that it's hard. I think people use anti-blackness as a vehicle for their own racial uplift. And so if you're going to use black people in that way, you have to continue to resolve your cognitive dissonance by denial. Like you have to actively be in delusion to see the disparities very visibly and still call it like it isn't still pretend as if it doesn't exist, still pretend as if the people who are suffering and marginalized and grieving are the problem. You can't be privy to any amount of pain that other human beings are experiencing and exist as if it doesn't affect you unless you have dehumanized them. And so I think that a lot of people have contempt for Black people, disgust of Black people, and an intention to distance them because they want to use blackness as, or their ideas about blackness as the way that they align with whiteness. So that's people of color who are non-black and that's white people. You better preach. Okay. Come on now. Okay. We got to dive in deeper into this. Tell Let's us some more about this. Tell more. Us, you know, yes. some more about this. Okay. What else you, what else you been researching Dr. Candace? <laughs> because the school systems are complicit and we know that. Yes. If K through 12, all you learned about was Rosa Parks and MLK and slavery, then our education system missed a whole opportunity to be honest. It just missed an opportunity to be honest. And it also was complicit in creating a delusion. It's like Easter bunnies and Santa Claus and no racism exists. All of that goes together. And so people buy into this because they're like, oh, I wasn't exposed to it. But did you grow up in a predominantly white neighborhood? on unceded indigenous lands like if you did then you know that racism exists like you can still piece these stories together but i always say the united states has amazing branding so we can weave a story about melting pots and weave a narrative and paint a beautiful picture about everyone being treated equally even while people bring picnic baskets to lynchings that part and so When we think about this, about this level of vitriol towards Mm -hmm. blackness and how we as black people have to exist in this, right? If we are saying, okay, you know what? I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I need to heal. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to be depressed. I don't want to have fibroids or high blood pressure or any of the other medical conditions that can come up. How do we pour into ourselves? What do we do for healing from this racial trauma? I think we all inherently have healing strategies that came to us as kids, things we love to do, things we could do for hours that were fun to us that we forget or get socialized out of as adults, right? So for me, I used to write a lot more like poetry and like stories, creative, like imaginative things, play music, listen to music, write it, all of that. Like those are, those are strategies for healing. If we return to those things that brought us joy in childhood, that's one really main strategy. Joy is resistance and healing. So not buying into this toxic seriousness 
of the academy or corporate America or professional organizations and really still reclaiming your joy. Like, I don't know about y'all, but I have enjoyed these versus battles and dancing and laughing. That's black joy, you know, and black healing. I have felt well after watching Patty. (laughs) (laughs) But another thing is affirmation. So self-affirmation serves to deprogram some of those racist stereotypes that have been embedded in our culture so frequently that we internalize those messages and we don't even realize it a lot of the time. So saying things that affirm your inherent worth and value every single day, things that affirm the beauty of the hair that grows out of your scalp and the eyes that you have and the lips that you have and the nose that you have and your way of being and how loud you, you laugh or whatever it is about you that has some cultural origin, like affirming those things consciously, affirming those things daily. So I have my clients sometimes put sticky notes on their windows or write the affirmations in their journal daily or just set an alarm on their phone to say them out loud in the morning and let them know that it's going to take time. Like you might not even believe some of these good things about yourself initially because you've been socialized to believe so differently, but over time it erodes that helps you divest from these white ideas about you. Another thing is taking good care of your physical and mental health. So therapy with a therapist who knows and who gets it and physical wellness are so core because as we described earlier, we experience racial trauma somatically, physiologically in our health outcomes. And so I bought a used elliptical machine a few Weeks ago, I told my husband, I was like, I can't sustain this level of work and this amount of energy doing this anti-racist work if I don't take better care of myself physically. So now I commit to, okay, I'm going to get on this elliptical for 30 minutes, watch my little show and do right by my body because that's what's going to help me be well. That's another strategy. Community care, collective care, engaging in resistance. So everybody doesn't have to be in protest, but if protest is your thing, being on the front lines, do that. That can facilitate your wellness. But sometimes writing is your protest. Sometimes a podcast like this is your protest. You know, and so speaking up at work might be someone's protest. Those things actually do feel healing and liberating, even though they feel scary. Those are beautiful examples. I'm getting a little emotional just thinking about wow, I'm gonna okay. I'm sorry. Thank you. I think what's coming up for me is just that we have been through so much as a community. Mm-hmm. And we are still fucking here. Mm-hmm. We are still doing the damn thing. We are still, you know, investing in our self-care. We are still showing up. We are still giving back to our communities. Yes. And I think that one thing we often talk about on the podcast, Dr. Candace, is that when you sit down and look at it, we have a lot against us as a community, as a people. And to see us still thriving, to see us still showing up and wanting to do better in the midst of a system of white supremacy that really does not mean us any good, we won't die. Like, we are here. You feel me? Okay. And it's just like hearing you. I can't wait to re-listen to this episode. So I'm just like, oh my gosh, this is so good for the soul. I want to talk to you about one thing because I can already see this is something that comes up often. I think it's a personally a way to gaslight Black Mm -hmm, people. mm -hmm. but. People often talk about the victim mentality. And it's so interesting because it's like, well, we are being victimized, although we choose to be victors. So where does the victim mentality come into place around these topics of racial trauma? 
I think you're right about it being gaslighting. What I call that when someone uses that language, it's a conversation foreclosure where you're seeking to stop the conversation because whoever uses that technique is feeling uncomfortable. They can't sit with the discomfort of having something about racism unpacked for them or having to reconcile what their identity is and how they have been involved and complicit in racism. And so they foreclose on the conversation by saying, you're just being a victim, when really it's a lack of tolerance for their own discomfort. So recognizing that you don't have to buy into like the pain of that gaslighting as much because you see that person for who they are. You see them as a person who has such a lack of tolerance for their own discomfort that they can't Mm -hmm. empathize with you. It really is underdeveloped empathy skills. And when you have power, the more power and privilege you have in a society, the less developed those skills get to be because people don't even expect you to develop them. We operate in so many ways to preserve the comfort of white people. I think about the language we use, the linguistic style we use, the clothes we wear like the volume we use, the way we express or do not express affect, all of these dispositions, little nuances of what we call professionalism really only seek to uphold white people's comfort for the most part in their ability to easily move through life as comfortable and safe feeling as possible. But I just shared this on my um, social media the other day. I was like, There have been so few moments in my life as a black woman where I have felt protected or safe. I think of safety as a social construct that doesn't really exist for me. And I think there have been people in my life who thought they were facilitating my safety, but not enough people who really know the things that I feel at risk of or afraid of. And to be used to that at 37 is the way I think most black women and people of color broadly operate. That we don't even expect safety. We desire it, but we don't expect it. And I think most white people expect safety because there are systems in place and even people in place to uphold their sense of safety. We don't have the same luxury. I mean, that's a valid point. Just think about all of the Karens and the Beckys out there Mm -hmm. that automatically go to calling the police. Yes. And lying on us when either they are in the wrong or for whatever reason, they feel uncomfortable with witnessing our joy. Yes. Our joy, not even violence, just our joy. Our joy. You know, because I think about like the example that made national news a couple of years ago with Barbecue Becky. Mm -hmm. And I'm here in Oakland, not that far from where that happened. and. I know that like from talking with people who have lived in Oakland for decades, that black folks gathering around the lake has been happening for decades. Mm. Right. And here you have this white woman who is uncomfortable with black folks gathering to just be themselves, Mm. to be in community with one another. and. There was no violence. So when there's no violence, that means that we are defying those negative stereotypes. Yep. I mean, you are speaking on it. I can count on one hand the number of times I have called 
the police and I was in physical violent danger. That is it. And it had to be extreme. Like someone broke into my house. You know what I mean? Like never would I ever think to see somebody enjoying themselves and call the police on them. That would never cross my mind. And I think the sick thing about it is that because of everything in the media, they're complicit. They know what goes down when the cops come for black people. Somebody could possibly die. And so they should be held accountable for that. And I know sometimes they have been, but they should be held accountable. That is like an accessory to a murder, potentially. When you know that you calling the cops on black people could potentially have someone lose their lives that's Mm -hmm. unarmed for no reason, little kids even. So that just makes me think, Dr. Candace Nicole, you shared some really great tips for black women. Is there anything in particular that you would advise folks to do with their children? Because kids are now in this world of social media, they're witnessing this. And I can imagine having a little one having to explain to them why their blackness and the color of their skin, because you know, kids are honest, right? Mm -hmm. They're like, that shit don't make sense. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like, Mm -hmm. what do do we do? How do we help our kids heal? I think that racial socialization is such an important opportunity we have where we can let kids know that people are going to lie about them and be really clear that it's a lie, that all these stereotypes that they may try to impose on them are not true and that you know who they really are and you will continue to affirm it. You can prepare them without making them shrink. And that's, I think, the difference maker there where you're thinking about how some of us, and I understand where it comes from, try to get our kids to wear a certain haircut, wear certain clothes, don't say this, never speak up, stay under the radar, always be 100% perfect and excellent. I get where that comes from, but in what world do children operate that way? Let your children be free and also inform them that some people will see their joy and want to attack it. Some people will see them playing and want to annihilate them. And that that's because they believe lies about them. They don't know who they really are. And so affirming their history, giving them opportunities to read about all of these amazing black figures in history before the United States even existed and currently giving them opportunities to play with other kids that look like them and have space for that. Their books should look like them. Their toys should look like them. At every turn, the cartoons they might be exposed to should look like them. And at every turn, make sure that they are represented in a variety of ways so that you're not having to explain to them why the good doll is white and the bad doll is black, right? We don't want to replicate that in what we do. So Mm -hmm. those are some of the ways that we think about children and of course, developmentally appropriate levels. So you don't say the same thing you do to, you say to a five-year-old that you do to a 10-year-old or a 15-year-old, but giving them that information really early on. Another piece, I'll go to the school and let them know what you expect, how you expect your child to be treated, what you expect the curriculum to be like, what kind of representation you need on the faculty and in the administrators, be at school board meetings, advocating. Because it's such a large portion of their day for most kids that you being in there and saying, this is what I need so that I know my child is well here is important. That is so important because the narratives that they learn, Mm -hmm. that's the foundational years, the formative years. And so the narrative 
that they receive in school, whether that's direct or indirect, Mm -hmm. has a strong impact on who they turn out to be as adults. Yes. Wow. You know, I just think about like that narrative and how important it is. Like one of my nieces was telling me about what she learned about what their school was teaching about Abraham Lincoln. Mm. What did they learn? (laughs) (laughs) And when she, she shared, I think the sentence was that, you know, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. And it's, and before she could say any more, I was like, sorry, Mm-mm. let's back up and <laughs> let's pull out some history. Let's like Google some history, yes. you know, because Google is what y'all relate to. So let's Google and let's really learn about who Abraham Lincoln was, why we had the civil war in the first place and what really happened with the emancipation proclamation. Like, mm-hmm. Let me make sure that you are really hearing because clearly your teachers aren't teaching that. Yes. Then it's a hot mess. It really is. It shouldn't have taken for me to get to, I don't know, 15 when I watched Malcolm X for the first time or, I don't know, 13 when I watched Roots or certainly 18 when I went to Spelman for me to learn about Black history in a more nuanced way. That shouldn't have even been the case, but it was. Yeah. And it's all a part of the strategy, right? Mm -hmm. I know that I've personally been taking a, I guess you would say some type of fast from certain social media posts and one in particular that has really been difficult for me to look into more is the Breonna Taylor Mm -hmm. case. And so I just wanted to see Dr. Candice Nicole, if you had any feedback about the recent updates around that, I know it's been yeah, it's a lot. Yeah. And I do plan to look into it because we're going to do an episode where we talk a bit about some of the stuff there. But just any thoughts that come yeah. up for you? A ton because I'm in Kentucky. So oh my gosh, it just it just reverberated throughout the Commonwealth for black women in particular. So much so that that night when the most minimal of possible indictments came out on reckless endangerment charges for one of the three officers shooting into a wall of a neighbor and not even into Brianna's body. I just felt winded and exhausted. And I only wanted to be around black women. That was it. I just didn't, I didn't want to be around anybody else and no, no shade to black men either, but I didn't want to be around them either. And my husband was already out working and I was just like, you know what? I'm going to create a healing space for black women. And so I just shared with a few of my groups for women of color. And I was like, you know, I'm going to hold a healing space for black women from seven to eight. And there were about six, seven of us. And we just got together and we processed it and we cried and we laughed and we talked about our struggles and our strengths. And it was beautiful. And that is, I think, like in small pockets, how people are finding resilience and coping. I know that the Movement for Black Lives, the chapter of Black Lives Matter in Louisville is phenomenal. And so they have been on the ground sharing media, sharing strategies, bailing people out, paying for people's housing, starting grocery stores. Like they have been active, but people would paint them as a movement, as criminals and thugs and like as rioters, as opposed to people who have a really strategic an intentional focus on black wellness and black liberation and comprehensive. So I think that has been going on. People have been building community movement making, and it's reminded me of 
who I really want to invest time in. Yes. And, you know, I think what you shared about how all of the work that they are doing. Yes. And how little of that gets out there. You feel me like so little press to such groundbreaking, important public health work. It is really public health strategy that they are doing. And people overlook it because they see riot. That's all they want to see. Wow. But I think that goes back again to that narrative of anti-Blackness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That to see us doing well, to see us still helping one another, despite the negative images that are out there, you know, I think that just continues to speak to yes. that need to deny our humanity, mm-hmm. that need to maintain whiteness and white privilege and white supremacy. And I don't even use the language white supremacy anymore because I think it's psychologically inaccurate. I share that on my social media that I really feel like it's a white inferiority complex because Mm -hmm. you don't need to dehumanize people if you feel whole and well. That's the behavior of people who feel incompetent and inadequate and impotent. It's like, I'm not going to endorse or even pretend like that's what superiority looks like. It isn't. You don't create all of these systems of oppression if you truly are a well person. You just don't. And so the continuation of them and the maintenance of them, that's for people who are ill. Absolutely. Wow. I would agree with that 100, 100%. Mm-hmm. And you spoke a little bit about liberation and we're going to shift up the energy okay. of the interview in just a bit. But I want to ask first, how can black women tap into their sensual selves in the midst of a pandemic? We have so much going on mm-hmm. on a racial level, health, environmental. We're in the Bay Area and we've had fires. I know some I folks know. have heard. How are y'all breathing out there? I mean, today is better. I have an air purifier now, but I mean... Every, it seems like every part of the world is just experiencing these environmental issues as well. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we know that you study, you know, sex and social justice and leadership. So I'm like, okay, let's dive into that a little yes. bit. Yeah. How do those two come together? They mm-hmm. always come together for me because I think there are some racial and cultural components to sexual identity and sexual pleasure that always show up in my research. And so when I study sex, typically studying black sexuality, but even when I'm not, I'm thinking about the black ways of engaging sensual sensuality. So let's, let's think about one in particular, the way we oil our bodies. That ain't everybody. That's us. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but that's a sensual um, act. It sure is. It's a sensual it act. Like it ain't even lotion. It's oil. It's cocoa Coconut butter. Oil? It's like, you know, Ooh. so it's like, that is a sensual act where how much time do you actually take for yourself in the shower? Is it purposeful and obligatory? Like I'm just cleaning myself or is it I'm caressing this beautiful body that I get to behold this black body that is worthy and worthy of pleasure, worthy of arousal and desire. Like, so the way you wash yourself is a sensual moment. And then the way you oil yourself and like taking your time and getting every nook and cranny with your coconut oil or your shea butter, the way you oil your scalp. I think about sensual moments, not sexual, but sensual and intimate moments in black families where somebody is scratching your dandruff and greasing your scalp. That is sensual. That's intimate behavior with a person because we don't let everybody in our hair. 
And so sure. like those, <laughs> you can't. And so, so those are some ways to be sensual. I believe in listening to the type of music that brings out your sensual side. Cause I think sensual energy is a really creative energy. So I have like a playlist called sensations that I always listen to get a little Janet on there, get a little tank on there, a little Jamie Foxx, little flow a tree and listen hey. to that. Yes. And it just opens you up. But what you taste, like the type of food you eat, do you take your time and eat or do you rush just trying to get from your meal to the next work thing you have to do? You know, I'm drinking a glass of red, white, red wine right now. And so just enjoying it, drinking it slowly as opposed to guzzling it down. All of those things, slowing down, being compassionate and tender and patient with yourself. Black women deserve and need that. And that's how we tap into our sensual selves. Walk slower, move your hips, you know, like all the things that we were, for some of us told, were fast. Be fast. Shoot, just (laughs) switch your hips. (laughs) Those things matter. (laughs) Yes. Make love to yourself. Make love to your partner. Like all of those pieces are very healing. I love that. And I love the way you spoke about it too, because I think sometimes there's a lot of shame and I'm in a place in my journey. I think like many of us grew up where, oh, that's fast or Mm -hmm. sex is like the secret thing and sensuality is this thing that shouldn't be discussed, but I'm embracing it more. And I think that is a beautiful thing. And it really does usher us into this next phase of the interview. So Dr. Candice, get ready, get ready. Okay, all right. (laughs) So because we recognize, appreciate, and celebrate the multifaceted woman, and we believe that it's okay to be classy and ratchet, and okay, and you can still be elegant and dance to strip club music, we want to invite you to the OU Clatchet segment. So do you take on the challenge? She was like, don't even finish it. Yes, I'm here. Let's do it. (laughs) This is a lifestyle for me. So let's go. Okay. All right. (laughs) Well, then we're going to jump right in. Twerk or two-step? Listen, first of all, twerk. <laughs> I love it. And that's on period, okay? Okay. Yes. Here we go. Yes. <laughs> you used to be able to do it in a split. I'm not at that level in life anymore, but... That's what I'm talking about. I'm trying to, okay, I'm trying, I'm trying to, to get to that level, level right? That was, in, that was in my 20s. It's probably not coming back. <laughs> <laughs> Next question for you. What is your guilty pleasure? I love delicious things. And so we have a grocery store called Kroger out here and they have these brown butter salted caramel cookies that and some ice cream. Just, oh, that does it for me. <laughs> Wait, what kind of ice cream? There's this ice cream shop out here called Sav's and they have a spicy banana. Ooh. Yes, right? It's just so unique. It's got a little cayenne in it, but it's a banana ice cream and it just hits. That just... Yo, all right, it's a dinner time. We need right? this. I just got excited. <laughs> like, ooh. <laughs> that this sounds amazing. Okay, it thank does. you for that. Okay. <laughs> all right. I don't even know how to come back from that because now I just want food. But (laughs) what song will get you to the dance floor so that maybe you might attempt that twerk in a split? Okay, so it depends. What song will get me to the dance floor is Nuck If You Buck. I will not twerk to Nuck If You Buck. I'm going to run around the club. But what will get me to potentially do 
like a a twerk, a little split situation is like hydraulics. Like what is it called? Scar. So oh. uh, Luke, Uncle Luke. Uncle yeah. Luke. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh. Oh. Okay. Okay. I feel like we need to have a party. Like I'm just like, I'm just ready for like the party, like with the cookies and the ice cream and the Mm -hmm. wine and the music. And that would be a healing event. Yes. Yes, it would. Okay, Don, we got to work on some ideas for how how to make that happen. Yes. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's see. Our next question, Dr. Candice Nicole is, how do you want to be remembered? I want to be remembered as someone who made people remember their inherent worthiness and value in the world that nothing they said or did would take or strip that away that they came into this world worthy and they will leave this world worthy and that that reminder inspires them to do something beautiful with it beautiful I love it yes yes what would your stripper name be candy C-A-N-D-I maybe Candy Cane <laughs> okay okay this is, this is not the first time Dr. Candace has thought of this name right? you said that she okay. that, yes. that was my rap name when I wanted to be a rapper <laughs> <laughs> okay you got some bars for us right now you know I had some bars I no longer have bars but I always tell people the story about how I wanted to be a rapper when I was growing up and then I went to a concert in in Atlanta it was the Cash Money and Rough Riders concert of 99 and they were like who want to get a record deal and I was like I do my homegirls were like no girl don't do it I was like yes I am doing it (laughs) so I got on stage and I started spit my line and then all I hear was the machine gun soundtrack blowing my rap career off the stage and so you know that's when my husband was like we died laughing he was like that's when Dr. Candace Nicole was born (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh I love this story I love it that is so epic that is epic Are you happy they didn't have YouTube and all that stuff back then? Or would you have been cool? I don't operate that at all. I was just told. I know that's right. I came back to my seat. They were like, you all right, girl? I was like, yeah, girl, I had to try. That's right. You had Dr. Candace Nicole. She bowed it. I love it. (laughs) Well, that really wraps up our OU Clatchet segment. This was so fun, Dr. Candace. We all had long days. And I know today was a rough day for me personally. And this just gave me so much joy. I cannot wait to listen to this interview. Yes, that's what we love to hear. I want to let all of our listeners know where they can find you on social media, where they can connect with you. So feel free to share your handles and all that good stuff. Okay, sure. You can find me at Dr. Candace Nicole on Instagram and Facebook. And you can find my website, drcandicenicole.com and also centerforhealingracialtrauma.com if you're looking for consultation on anti-racism or if you're in Kentucky and you're looking for therapy services, we provide that. Amazing. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been great and very uplifting. Yes, this is exactly Yay. what we needed. Mm-hmm. We had our own little healing party. Yes. Dr. Candace, thank you for all the work that you do our community we will definitely be in touch and thank you thank you hey lady it's dr dom here from the her space podcast do you have a burning question you're dying to get feedback on do you want an unbiased perspective on a situation you're facing 
If so, visit herspacepodcast.com and click Ask Dr. Dom under the Start Here option. Every Tuesday, I'll choose a few questions and answer them at random. Today's episode is sure to provide you with motivation, inspiration, or even a fresh perspective. If you have any aha moments or if you feel comforted throughout the episode, lady, please leave us a review and tell us what we're doing right so we can stay on track. Also, we release episodes every Friday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes and visit herspacepodcast.com and enter your email address to get updates about our live events and all of the new beginnings that we have for this year. Thanks for joining us today in Herspace. Please note that our show may contain conversations about self-help, advice, self-empowerment, and mental health. But it is by no means meant to be a substitute for an ongoing formal relationship with a trained mental health provider. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health care, please visit the Therapy for Black Girls directory, Psychology Today, or contact your insurance provider. If you liked what you heard and want to keep the conversation going, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at HerSpacePodcast or check out our website at herspacepodcast.com. And before we meet again, repeat after me. Although my plans may change, I will stay committed to my purpose. We'll see you next week, lady.